much for joining us. This is Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. I'm a clinical psychologist, leadership consultant, and a really big fan of you getting to fulfill your life purpose. I want you to get unstuck and unlock your potential relationally, emotionally, spiritually, and vocationally. Thanks for joining us and let's get started. Welcome to Unlock You with Dr. Shannon Crawford. We just wrapped up an incredible episode with Satchel Stilwell, and we were talking from the family perspective of walking with somebody that you love who has an issue with addiction. So if you didn't hear that episode, it has already posted by the time you hear this. And we wanted to jump in from the perspective, if you're somebody who has dealt with addiction and you're looking for solutions and help and trying to figure it out, I know in my own life that willpower willpower enough has never worked. I need actual practical things, steps. And so we want to take the shame off of anybody who's struggling with addiction. And Satchel is amazing at sharing some of his own personal story, as well as years of working in the addiction recovery space. So to just give us some practical tools and relatable stories that maybe can help you or someone you know of who may be struggling with addiction. Yeah. So again, thank you for having me. Yeah. Glad you're here. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I wanted to start with um, really a picture of the progression of addiction. So addiction always starts in a social setting. Mm. Um, it's fun. Everybody's partying. Everybody's having a good time. Right. Um, after a while, after years, it ends up all alone. Yeah. In an apartment, in a dark place where you're not sharing your drugs, you're not sharing your alcohol um, you're, you're lonely. Um, there's this, this absolute palpable feeling of loneliness. Wow. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but think about one of my recent clients. I've been working with his son, but I treated him. He was a father. Um, and I, I treat his son now, but he just passed away hmm. of cirrhosis. Um, and it was years of alcoholism. He went through treatment um, but unfortunately, he did not get sober. He continued drinking and um, he lost his family. His wife divorced him and he was found in his apartment alone, dead. <sighs> and, you know, it's it's always sobering um, as a therapist now to hear stories like that, because I relate to that experience so much. I remember um, being in my apartment by myself and having a Bible on the shelf, uh, which is where I kept it <laughs> <laughs> with dust. Yeah. With dust. Cause, uh, I could not open it. Um, cause I knew if I opened it and I started to read what was in it, I was immediately going to be convicted by what I read. Mm. So, you know, I wouldn't read it. Uh, I would purposely avoid it. And I remember in my prayer life, I was still praying, which is kind of funny. I wasn't reading the Bible, but I wasn't really going to church, but I was still praying. Um, <laughs> and I would ask for forgiveness and mm. I would confess my sin, you know, that I got high that day and I would, um, I would actively try, you know, to not do it again. And I would, you know, make these declarations in yeah. the spirit that I wasn't going to. And sure enough, the next day I would, yeah. you know, just hours later after that prayer, I would. Um, and I would get so you know, again, convicted about that, that eventually that ceased, you know, mm -hmm. um, addiction is funny. It's, it's this disease that does not like to be treated. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I tell people that you look at these other disorders and what's different about 
alcoholism and addiction versus like bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, any of these other ones, um, those, the people that have those disorders, they know they have it. Mm -hmm. You know, someone that's in a manic episode is aware that they're in a manic episode. Mm -hmm. They're aware that something's off and they need help. Mm -hmm. Um, When someone's in addiction or, or, you know, in the stages of alcoholism, even when they get sober, um, their brain has a way of convincing them that they're better now Mm -hmm. so that they can, they can get high again, or they can have a beer and it's Mm -hmm. no big deal. So there's a few things going on there. Number one, it's brain chemistry, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also a spiritual component going on there as well. Um, And and we look at it as mind, body, and spirit. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to treat all three of those. Um, So for me, when I was walking through my time, I felt like an absolute slave to my drug. Um, It went from being something fun that I would do with other people to something I had to do when I woke up. I had to do it when I ate. I had to do it before I went to class. I had to do it after I came home from class. I had to do it when I worked. It was like this all-encompassing thing. And I I looked at it as like an enhancement. Like I bought into this satanic lie that getting high and smoking weed would make everything better. Yeah. Right. And so then it became, I have to do it with everything. Mm -hmm. It it makes everything better. It's this enhancement for my life. Um, all the while I'm not realizing that it's really making everything worse. Yeah. Um, my, my memory, for instance, got terrible. And even now, you know, I, I stopped smoking weed in 2011 and even now my short-term memory is terrible, Mm -hmm. still hasn't fully recovered since Mm -hmm. then. And that's just a consequence. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately that's a consequence of, of my actions. That's a natural consequence of my actions that even though I don't do that anymore, I severely affected my brain's ability to retain short-term memory. Um, And so, you know, we can play this comparison game all day about which drug is worse and which one's more addictive and all that. But I don't really like to get into that because I don't really think it matters. Mm -hmm. I think um, we can become addicted to anything. We can become addicted to food. Absolutely. Become addicted to sex, work, drugs, Mm -hmm. alcohol, love, um, love. Yeah, money. I had a client that was addicted to the Bible Mm. and to the point where that was super unhealthy. So, I mean, it's possible for us to get addicted to anything. And I think um, part of that is just within our nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you're a slave to something, you realize that it controls you yeah, and not the other way around. And I love how Paul talks about this. Um, he, He says, you know, Um, I can, I can do anything or, you know, everything is lawful for me, but is this profitable? You know, Um, and then he furthers, I think it's in that same uh, portion of scripture where he talks about, um, I can do all things, but I'm not going to be a slave to anything. Yeah. And that was a huge uh, eye-opening verse for me when I first read that, because I started to look at the things in my life, you know, that I was using. And I came to this conclusion that I have not only been a slave to pot, I've been a slave to other things throughout yeah. my life. Um, but pot was really the thing that had me. And mm-hmm. people are shocked by this because I did other drugs. I did cocaine. Um, I did mushrooms. I've, I've done pretty much every drug except for heroin and acid. Um, pretty much everything else I've done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was in this mindset early into my addiction that I wanted to push my mind as far as it could go. Mm. I wanted to push the bounds of my sanity and my reality as far as it could go. And that resulted in me going to the hospital two times. Whoa. And uh, it was scary. It was yeah. as scary as it was for me. It was a lot more scary for my family. 
um, because the doctors the first time had told them we're not even sure if he's going to come back yeah. to reality um, which is possible some people can go so far out that they yeah. can't come back um, and for those who are listening, we have a whole diagnostic category for medication or drug induced mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. So you may not have one, but you can actually induce one through a drug or, or alcohol or medication yep. can induce that. So that's just something to be aware of, not to put fear in people, but just a reality check. Yeah. I wish I would have known that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have all the psychology uh, classes under my belt at that time, but, but yeah, everything just looked like um, it looked really cool to me, you know? So tell me about wanting to push your mind to the limit mm -hmm. and wanting, cause I've heard people even describe like they feel closer to God mm -hmm. or they can't do their, um, they feel more connected with the universe. And there's like this mind altering or opening experience that they're seeking and chasing after. What was that like for you? Um, it, it's, that's a really good question. It, it takes me back to the first time I did mushrooms. Uh, the first time I did mushrooms, I was in an incredible environment. I was in North Carolina and I was in the woods on a river and it's the first time I ever did any real psychedelic and everything was more colorful. I was more in touch with nature. I was more in touch with God, but I felt this sense that I was connected to the universe. And mm -hmm. I know that sounds real hippy dippy mm -hmm. <laughs> when I say it, but yeah, that's really the only way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. um, you feel this kind of unity with everything and you feel at peace. Now that was a good trip, mm -hmm. right? That, so I can't tell you about the good without telling you about the bad. So the second trip that I had on mushrooms, I had waited too long. And I had taken some mushrooms that had gone bad. So it was a similar dose that I had taken the first time, but I'd waited too long. And so they, these were field shrooms and they'd gone bad. And so by the time I ate them, I was on this trip and I was tripping for about five to seven days <gasps> without ceasing. Whoa. And that's how I ended up in the hospital the first time. Um, and so what was that like? Terrifying. Absolutely. And you can't horrible. get out of it. No, like it's in your own mind. Yeah. So the thing about a mushroom trip that people may or may not know, depending on your education level about drugs and their experiences is when you take mushrooms, you are on the ride. You're on the ride till it stops. There's, yeah. there's, you can't get off the ride early. It's kind of like a roller coaster. You're, you're riding that roller coaster until the roller coaster decides that it's over. Right. And the first time I was just on a trip for I don't know, four to eight hours. And then it came to its natural conclusion. Right. But the second time I did it, it was, it just kept going and going and going. Mm -hmm. um, and what they had said is that I'd had a psychotic break with reality, wow. but it was probably to your point, drug induced, obviously. Uh -huh. um, and it was a bad trip. So I was seeing hallucinations. I was, I had all these persecutory delusions. I thought my roommate was trying to gas me. I thought, I mean, just, I don't even remember all of it, but a lot of really weird um, delusions, which when I studied later, I found out a lot of the ones I have were actually really common okay. um, to that experience of having a bad trip. So that I never did shrooms again after that. And I never did any psychedelics again after that. Um, and anyway, what the point I was trying to kind of get to there was I tried a lot of different drugs, mm -hmm. right? Um, I did cocaine for a period of time. It was very brief. It was probably for two months. And then I just stopped. Mm -hmm. And I was like that with a lot of drugs. I could just stop mm -hmm. and just never do it again. Right. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about pot is pot was the only thing I couldn't stop. Hmm. It's the only thing that I, I had to have, mm -hmm. you know, I could, I could dabble in these other ones and try them and I liked them, but you know, eh. 
pot was always the one that I kept coming back to. I was, it was the one that I was literally a slave to. And um, as I moved through, you know, my addiction, it, it's like you, there's so much uh, that you can't tell people. Mm. There's so much of your life that you're not able to share. There's, there's pieces of the puzzle that you don't ever want people to know. Um, because Satan likes to keep our sin in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. Because once it's got light exposed to it, which is part, I mean, it's part of our name. First light counseling is that's what, that's a big belief system is we believe in shining light on, um, dysfunction, on toxicity, Mm -hmm. on addiction, on different sins, you know, spiritual oppression, things that are going on that need light shown on them. Um, that's what we're about. And so, um, the key, the the thing that was going on for me at this time is I had this huge seat of unforgiveness in my heart towards my dad, mm. because um, I had been really raised in a way to, to really dislike my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I don't, I don't want to throw everybody's business out there, but I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. Right. Um, and so I had this kind of hatred towards him because I felt like even though he was physically present mm-hmm. sometimes, he was emotionally very absent mm-hmm. and I resented him for that. Um, and there were times when we were supposed to go do something and then they would just bail last minute. Mm-hmm. And I remember those times and those times, those times were all throughout my childhood and even in my early adulthood. And it kind of became the fuel, right. Or the justification because addicts and, and users love to justify. Mm-hmm. And that's what it was for me. I could justify my usage because it went from seeking attention from him to I'm going to destroy myself. Mm. I'm just going to totally destroy myself. And maybe that'll make him feel bad. Wow. Right. It's a good point. It's pretty sick though. If wow. you think about it. Yeah. And but it helps get inside the internal world yeah. where maybe we don't think that deeply consciously. Right. Right. Yeah. The sad reality of that, as that developed was, while I did that and when I did that, it didn't result in what I wanted it to result in. Yeah. It was kind of like not even really noticed, right? Yeah. Which just kind of pushed me further into my um, addiction. And so all that to say that that was kind of the momentum into when I was 22 and I was still feeling lost. And even though I was sober now, I'd just gotten sober. I just quit, you know? Um, I had no idea how to handle my emotions. I was mm-hmm. a wreck. Mm-hmm. I was angry. I was anxious. I was irritable. Yeah. I was restless, irritable, restless, discontent, kind of like the big book says. Right. And I started to go to therapy um, when I was at DBU. Yay, therapy. <laughs> therapy. <laughs> Luckily, my therapy was free. And oh, it, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, it was mandatory because I was in the program and um, we had to do eight sessions with, mm-hmm. with another therapist that was at the student center, right? Mm-hmm. As part of our program requirement. And what was funny is some people will just blow it off yeah. and be like, okay, we're gonna talk about the Cowboys for an hour, you know, get these eight sessions done. But me, I looked at it and I said, man, what if I did it and just went for it? Yeah. Like, what if I actually tried to get something out of this? Somebody now? listening? <laughs> It may be mandatory, but it may, could still be good for you. You could still get some out of it, right? And uh, of course, the guy I was working with was, uh, you know, an intern, just like me, a little further along the program than me. But um, I went for it, and I I let everything out. And um, he got me to a point. His goal with me, it was pretty obvious, is that I needed to forgive my dad. Mm. I was like, no, like no, I'm not going to. I don't want to. No, 
Yeah, no, and and we would talk about this over and over. Well, I think you need to forgive your dad. You know, we yeah. keep coming back yeah. to this. And so I, let me pause you. Yeah. So if you haven't seen the episode with Donna De Silva, and she talks about the four doors that can open. So we have alluded to it earlier that there's also spiritual components to anything we talk about. There's the biological, psychological, social, and spiritual. And if we're just doing it with willpower alone, then we're fighting a spiritual batter, battle in our own strength. And you know we're fighting something much bigger than ourselves, And so we do have to identify what doors might be open. So he's going to share something really, really huge right now. And I want to make sure you're listening, but also your door might be a little bit different. Many times it is unforgiveness, or um, maybe you were molested or a trauma or a divorce or something may have happened at some point. And you need to go back and process and grieve it so that now you can release it and close the spiritual door where authority was given. And so there's an actual spirit of addiction. Not that we just abdicate all responsibility to the spirit realm, but you do want to know that we're not fighting flesh and blood, but spirits, powers, and principalities. There is a demonic component to addiction. And so we want that wisdom of kind of peeling apart which part is which. So to the credit of this counselor that worked with you, that he had the wisdom to say, yes, we want to deal with the addiction, but we also want to deal with the root system of why that addiction is so enduring. Right. versus just trying to willpower and technique your way through it. And that's the basis of this channel is I think many of us have worked really hard for a long time, myself included. And then I just feel shame because I'm like, oh, I can't maintain it. I'm broken. What's wrong with me? And then I just self-pity and go back to it even worse. And we're wanting to give you the deeper tools. And so I just applaud Satchel for sharing his story because I think a lot of you are going to resonate. And even if yours isn't traditional addiction, again, it could be food addiction, love addiction, um, uh, gambling. There's lots of different ways that addiction is played out. And I wanted to highlight the point you said that we can rationalize. So he was able to give up cocaine really easily or mushrooms really easily. And I've heard a lot of people with addiction say, well, I'm not addicted because I mean, I just gave it up for two years or I gave it up for two weeks or I just stopped that cold Turkey. But normally there's still an underlying area. There's some level of addiction below the ones you're willing to give up. And even when you walk away from it in the earlier episode, you should go back and watch with Satchel. He was saying that he was sober for two years and then a was a cable guy. Cable guy, yeah. cable guy was like, Hey, here, try this. And then like addiction back yeah. all the way back in again. And so just be aware that just because you feel like you're in control of your addiction and you've been able to walk away from certain ones or from it all together for many years, it doesn't mean you've gotten the root system. So I just want to undergird what he's saying is so, so important. If you're somebody who's dealt with any kind of addiction, there is usually an open door somewhere that needs to be dealt with. And we have to deal with the roots and the foundation so that you then are like able to let go of some of those things and why it was serving a function or a role in Mm -hmm. your life. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part he's going to talk about in his therapy journey. Yeah. So I love that. (laughs) I love all the what you said. Um, So Eric Erickson talks about this concept of unfinished business, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that therapist and his wisdom, even as a student, right, he recognized that, okay, that's good. You stop smoking pot and that's good. And Mm -hmm. and you're committed to that and and you're not doing that anymore, but there's still this other stuff. Exactly. And you still haven't dealt with that. Mm -hmm. And he was dead on. I mean, he was hundred percent correct because um, I hadn't, I hadn't dealt with that. And 
that's so common with the addict and the alcoholic, right? Is that there's still this stuff that they haven't dealt with. So you could see, they call it a dry drunk and you're probably familiar with mm -hmm. this term, but it's like somebody that stops drinking and they don't, they don't drink alcohol anymore, but they're miserable. Yeah. They're angry. They're resentful. They hate the world. Mm -hmm. And it's because they haven't worked a program. Number one, number exactly. two, it's also because they've probably got some unfinished business exactly um, that they need to deal with. And so the forgiveness piece for me um, was mind, body, and spirit. Mm. Um, I had to be mentally ready to do it. I just be spiritually ready to do it. And I had to be physically ready to do it. Mm -hmm. And I can't, you know, I, I, I look back and I can't remember which one was the hardest, but I, I remember kind of progressing through those in the therapy sessions to where like, okay, I'm good on that one. I think I'm, you know, in that spot, good. I'm good on that one. But then there was like one that I was like, and I think it was physically, I think it was saying it you know, and, and approaching that with my dad. And uh, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. Wow. Um, because it was like, my dad was, is and was, I'm not so much more now, but especially growing up, he's a very stoic man, kind of that old school mm -hmm. cowboy generation, like rub some mm -hmm. dirt in it, like it's gonna be okay. Like, you know, we don't, yep. we don't talk about it. Uh, and I'm the opposite. I'm like, let's talk about feelings. Let's like, <laughs> let's dive in. You know, I, I love all that. And he's just not from that generation. Sure. And um, the epiphany that the Lord showed me was that my dad was parented with the tools that were in his parents' toolboxes. That's right. And both of his parents were severe alcoholics. Oh, wow. His mother drank herself to death. Wow. And his father drank himself to death over a longer period of time yeah they were not really there mm -hmm. i mean in a sense of like actually supervising them watching what they did making mm -hmm. sure they needed to do what they were doing you know mm -hmm. from a parental supervision standpoint it was a nightmare yeah so the lord showed me that mm -hmm. and then the lord showed me that it's it's unfair for me to assess my father's uh, parental deficits mm. based on what I understand about parenting yeah because my dad didn't have seven eight years in psychology learning about mm -hmm. <laughs> counseling and how to parent and yeah. you know child development and all that he yeah. had none of that knowledge right and I realized that I was judging him unfairly based on that yeah. based on an expectation that was in my head of what should have been and wasn't done yeah right um and so I would say that that therapy was really for me taking that first step. And then the forgiveness was the thing that was really transformational for me. Mm -hmm. um, as that kept going and I kept growing and, and getting away from the usage, right? I had things like cravings. I had things like using thoughts. I had things like uh, using dreams. I had using dreams almost every single night for two years. Oh, that's and hard. It's really bad. And uh, it got to the point where the only thing I knew to do was to pray over my sleep, mm -hmm. to pray over my sleep life. And I still, I'll talk with clients about that today because it was, it was the only thing that changed it for me um, was before I would go to bed, I mean, in bed. I would just pray over my dreams yeah. and just that the Lord would protect me. And the funny thing about my using dreams and they're different, everybody's using dreams are kind of different, but um, my using dreams were not fun. They revolved around me hiding, me lying, me obtaining drugs. Mm -hmm. And right when I would get to where I was going to use them, I'd wake up. Mm. And every one of the dreams was the same way. Mm. So my using dreams weren't really about using 
they were more so about deceit. Yeah. And I think it's just my own theory on it. I think that really what it was representative is my spirit. I was living in a spirit of deceit for so long. Yeah. That my spirit was like used to that. Mm-hmm. And now it wasn't. Now everything was out in the open and I had nothing else to hide. Mm-hmm. Everything is known now. Right. Yeah. And I think my spirit and maybe even my brain to a certain level was still trying to kind of go back to that subconsciously um and i love what you said about uh, i don't i can't remember how you phrased it but basically these things that we use at the time Mm -hmm. you know they serve us for a time right because we needed it at a time yeah or you know we believed that we needed it for a time and when we did it it was enough for us to survive whatever it was we were going through um and that's what it was for me it was this little blanket that kept me warm you know Mm -hmm. and I used that and until it kind of lost its value way past when it lost its value yeah (laughs) to the point where it it had it not only did not have any value it was causing damage yeah in my relationships with my short-term memory um, my ability to function at work at school you know um all that stuff yeah And what are your thoughts about our culture now progressively normalizing marijuana that it's a dispensary? It's not just for medical purposes now. It's just like, hey, this is going to be something we can tax now. It's no longer called a a legal substance. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that when for so long people have been like, oh, it's it's not that big of a deal. It's just pot. Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. I have gone back and forth on that. Um, The thing is, I look and I've studied this extensively, but you know, you look at the history of prohibition and mm-hmm. you look at the history of the drug war. Um, it's been an abysmal failure in this in this country. So um, we have not succeeded. There's been so many um, disparate things that have happened. You know, if you look at incarceration rates yeah. and, and the cocaine and the crack epidemic and all of that. I mean, there's a whole lot of angles to it that you you really have to educate yourself on. But I'd say. From a personal perspective, I don't think it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, why I don't think it's a good idea is because I think it um, not only enables the behavior, but it promotes the behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have absolutely no safeguard in place to say, yeah, don't do that. You know, I'll give you an example um, that's applicable to this, right? You look at San Francisco and what's going on right yeah. now. Right. Well, they've decriminalized all theft under a thousand dollars. Did you know that? So <laughs> it's I, I laugh. We need you, Jesus. Come back. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh, but it, it's terrible. Yeah. Because what's happening is these people will go into a CVS, they'll have their bicycle and they'll get their trash bag and they'll just, just grab steal. stuff off the shelf and they'll put it in a big bag and then we'll go right out the door. And the security officers right there, and then we'll right by them. And they can't do anything about it. It's literally lawlessness. Yeah. And a lot of the CVS branches there, interestingly enough, are closing their doors or shuttering their stores. Why? Right? Yeah, you can't have a business. How can we, yeah, how can we make a profit if people just come in and stealing stuff, right? So it's I kind of look at the drug thing in the same way. It's like if you have this this idea that, like, oh, everything's legal, again, Portland, Oregon. Okay, there's another example, right? Now you're telling me, and what was so funny, I couldn't get over this, but during COVID, right? You couldn't have gatherings of more than six people, uh-huh. but you could shoot heroin and you could do meth <laughs> yeah. by yourself, uh-huh. right? And we care about people's lives. Right. We care about health, but we want you to be alone doing meth in your apartment. And it, 
it's, we're going to provide clean needles for yeah. you to go overdose. Right, right, right. Exactly. You know, and you look at all the things that have been tried, you know, the harm reduction policies and, um, and then even like the stiff penalties for, uh, for nonviolent crime. I mean, you had 2.3 million over to well over 2.3 million people incarcerated and 89% of those were for nonviolent crimes. So there's a balance to it. It, it. There's a balance to everything, right? It can't, I don't think it can't be total lawlessness. I don't think that's the right way, mm-hmm. but I also don't think we should have, um, we should have penalty in terms of incarceration for that because it's very similar to if you looked at food addiction, right? Mm-hmm. And, and let's just say if somebody was morbidly obese, right? Mm-hmm. So are you going to give them a ticket if they eat a cheeseburger? Are you going to put them in jail for 60 days because they gained 20 pounds? That's kind of the way I look at it. It's mm-hmm. like you're trying to solve a problem that is a disorder, it's a disease by means of incarceration. And that's not actually solving the problem, that's making the problem worse. Mm-hmm. And a lot of judges, I will say, over the course, what was interesting, working in treatment for the seven years that I did, um, I started to see the position of a lot of judges change. Mm-hmm. And judges have started to, at least in Texas, I don't know about anywhere else, but I know the ones around here, the ones that are in Texas, have started to look at this in a more common sense way. Because mm-hmm. what they're noticing is the recidivism rate. Oh, totally. You know, mm-hmm. and I won't get into the whole, my opinion about the legal system and the recidivism rate and the profitability and all that, but I will say this, the judges have noticed that they keep coming in for the same thing Mm -hmm. and that's drug usage and that's possession. And that's, you know, that's things that are associated with drug usage, which might be, you know, um, armed robbery or Mm -hmm. aggravated assault or something like that. And they're moving away from, um, more of a judicial punishment for that into a uh, rehabilitative mm-hmm. avenue, which is we need to get you into treatment. Yes, I'm going to court mandate that you need to do 90 days in treatment and you need to do 90 days in sober living. And what was so fun, I say fun, it was fun though, but working at a treatment center, what was cool is when we would have a guy come in that was court mandated, the judge would basically say, whatever you say this guy needs, that's what he has to do. And so it, it gave me a lot of power as a clinician because mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I know exactly what he needs. <laughs> I'm working with my team. Obviously, it's not just me kind of willy-nilly making a decision, but I know exactly what this guy needs. Mm-hmm. He needs 90 days in here and he needs at least 90 in a sober living facility, right? Mm-hmm. And the judge, stamp of approval on that. And so then this guy has to choose between if I drop out of this program early, I'm going straight to jail. Mm-hmm. And there is a consequence. Absolutely. And you're going to be there longer. Probably you're probably going to do a three-year bid Mm -hmm. or you can stay in treatment Mm -hmm. and get sober and And give it a shot. Give it a shot. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think back to maybe it was our first episode, but you were alluding to the fact that I didn't know, and I think you said it today as well, but you didn't know how to cope. Like marijuana really served as kind of the sedative that self-medicating helped mm-hmm. alleviate anxiety, which by the way, a lot of times what we're doing today, whether with food or video games or drugs or alcohol or internet, social media stuff, whatever you're doing is usually alleviating an underlying emotion. And even though it may be 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that emotion stays alive inside your body. So he had shared in the first episode about his parents going through divorce and then just kind of this stoic, emotionally kind of distant 
family structure on one side and um, a good stepfather, but some of those emotions early on in life got stuck. And so what you see is whether it was this or something else, we will usually try to get something to self-medicate us. Some people it's workaholism. Some people it's overly trying to serve and people please and perform for everybody or video games, whatever it might be for you. There's usually an underlying emotion. And if you'll do the work, if you'll do the therapy and find out what's that open door, what's the unresolved issue that I need to work through so that my soul is no longer stuck. And it's really important to know there is research. Um, and I read articles, I think it was probably even 10 years ago about, it's not just that marijuana itself is addictive, but it's addictive in the fact that I replace it with coping mechanisms. And so there's a maturity level that people get stuck at when we start any addiction. Mm -hmm. Again, video games, uh, workaholism, you know, uh, anorexia, anything that we say, I am going to use this to medicate my anxiety. This is going to help me feel more secure and less anxious, less afraid in the world. I'm going to feel more confident and peaceful through this avoidance of something, right? And so when that happens, people say, oh, but marijuana is not really addictive. What you're doing is you're just adding another socially okay, another socially acceptable form of avoidance that people now their brain really does get addicted, but then your soul gets addicted to going, well, I just need this to feel better. You know, we can do it with small doses with like caffeine or um, subtler things or chocolate and sugar and binge eating. We can do it with lots of different things, but just because um, you may not be able to go, oh, your brain is addicted in this way, in the same way as like a cigarette or a cocaine, but it's still creating an emotional connection with something that I don't actually have to deal with real life anymore. And so you'll see that people kind of stay at the maturity level of when they start consistently engaging in any form of addiction. And that's where some of you listening might be saying, whoa, I can't imagine my life without marijuana. I can't imagine my life without alcohol or video games or sexting or whatever the thing for you might be, because it, there's anxiety that comes up. And it's actually that anxiety that if you'll work through and resolve that, and you do the work of forgiveness or whatever you need to do on the inside side, now your soul no longer needs to self-medicate that and your body will go through a withdrawal period, but it's actually less hard on your body than it is the soul. If you don't deal with kind of like the dry alcoholic, if you don't deal with the underlying uneasiness in your soul, then all of that is still playing out in the foreground. And you're trying to just now work a lot or go to church a lot or do these behaviors on the outside that may be better behaviors than whatever your prior addiction, but it's not resolving the underlying issue. And I love that Satchel's pointing that out today. So I want you to share in the last couple of minutes. Yeah. I know you had a couple more points you wanted to right. highlight. Yeah, just one last thing, really. Um, if you're feeling lonely, you're feeling angry, you're feeling scared, you're feeling like there is no way out, I can tell you that there is. And um, I can tell you that there's so many people that want to see you do well. And there's so many people that want to help you. And help is available. Um, help is not just you know paid for. Uh, you don't you don't have to go to treatment. You don't have to go to individual therapy. We have things like AA. Uh, we have Celebrate Recovery. We have all these different groups. Um, we have churches, you know, um, and a lot of churches uh, are getting better about identifying that. Hey, this is a bigger issue. You mm -hmm. know, this person needs something um, more than what we can provide them. And so when you 
when you do, when you get on the other side of that, when you experience spiritual freedom um, and freedom from addiction and alcoholism, you begin to take ownership yeah. of all the things in your life. And the things that you take ownership of, some of those are tricky. Some of those are difficult. Um, actually, a lot of those things are a lot harder now. <laughs> so I'm not going to sugarcoat that. A lot of things are a lot harder now. But you also get this whole slew of blessings. Yeah. Uh, these things that come into your life. You know, I've got three kids. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got a house. I've got two, three cars. I've got a, a thriving business. Mm -hmm. And it's all because of God. It's because God has gifted me this stuff in my life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think God blesses everybody, you know, but when we're doing things that are in accordance with his will, I think yeah. um, our lives will become a lot easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, don't be afraid to reach out and to take that first step um, to tell somebody that you're struggling if yeah. you are. Yeah, so good. We love you on this channel. We want to be a support to you. And if you want to reach out, uh, First Light Counseling Satchel specializes in that. And he has a whole team um, for addiction, but also marriage and lots of other topics. Um, and then again, remember that you are worth that investment. We want to get you unlocked because you have potential. You have greatness that you're here for a purpose. So getting free from whatever addiction, any snare that is enslaving you, whatever that might be, even if we didn't mention it by name today, something that's holding you back and keeping you enslaved and locked inside, you're not generous. You're not thoughtful. You're not discipling and mentoring and leading others because we become very self-absorbed when we're in a place of addiction. And in this channel, we want you to know there's gold in you. There's a treasure in you. God has you here for a purpose. And even if you don't know who God is, he wants to know you. He has a calling on your life. And if you just say, Hey God, I don't know who you are. Would you reveal yourself to me? Just something really simple. He will. Usually it's not a burning bush in the first five minutes that you ask. But if you stay open and you stay curious, you'll find this friend and we found Jesus and he has been an incredible friend. And if you walk with him, he will bring life into alignment. I've, I haven't dealt with drug addiction, but I've dealt with food addiction and all kinds of other types of addictions. And life just gets so much sweeter and easier in that place of surrender where I'm no longer holding on to that idol that if I just have this, I'll be okay. And it's the scariest thing. I know that it is to release whatever you've been holding on to, but as you release and you allow surrender, you'll find all these blessings start filling your life. And then you get to start mentoring the next generation and having a huge impact. And now Satchel and myself are both adjunct professors getting to help equip the next generation. And our life is so much bigger than just ourselves or whatever addiction that might've held us back. We are believing that for you. We want to hear from you and we want your joy to be your joy to be so eternal and not just temporal based on circumstances. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Bye guys. Love you. Hey friends, thanks for listening. We would love for you to get plugged in with the Unlock You community. So follow the links below and stay up to date with upcoming content, events, and groups. We are here to invest in you and tailor episodes around your interests. Post comments, and hey, if there are any specific topics you'd like to hear about, let us know so we can strategically build content that is meaningful to you. And will you share this podcast so we can invest into more amazing people? Be sure to hit subscribe so we can see you for the next episode.